0: It's time for Talking Michigan Transportation, a podcast devoted to the conversations with people at the forefront of the ongoing mobility revolution. In the state that put the world on wheels, here's your host, MDOT Communications Director Jeff Cranston.
1: Hi, welcome to the Talking Michigan Transportation podcast. This week, I have a very special guest, Dr. Timothy Gates, an engineering professor at Michigan State University, and one of the state's foremost experts and at least in the research of speed limits and he'll probably say that i'm overstating that because he's a humble guy but uh thanks for being here dr gates
0: thank you jeff and yes you definitely are overstating that um we've got a great team here at msu that's been studying speed limits for quite a long time so i i certainly can't take all the credit for that so
1: Well, let's talk about some of the work that your team has done on this and uh, first give a little bit of your background so people understand why I've selected you to to be the voice uh, on this topic.
0: Well, um, I led or co-led two studies, um, Well, largely while I was at Wayne State uh, back about uh, starting in maybe 2012 that investigated uh, setting speed limits. Actually, it first started out with the differential speed limit between cars and trucks on freeways. And then it evolved into looking, once the kind of the legislative discussion uh, chatter started to uh, ramp up with respect to raising the 70 mile per hour limit, actually at that time up to 80 miles per hour, um, we you know, modified the scope of our current research project to also include looking at um, interstate and other freeway speed limits. And then that uh, took another turn when the speed limit issue at the legislative level t- opened up a little bit more to um, all high-speed roadways, so like our two-lane uh, trunkline roadways in rural areas. And, um, and so then we opened the project up just really to basically all rural uh, highways, so basically investigating what, what should be the appropriate speed limit on, on rural highways. Um, since then, I've been involved with uh, some work at the national level, um, a uh, National Cooperative Highway Research Program uh, project that's um, sponsored by the Transportation Research Board. That's investigating uh, s- speed limit guidelines. Basically, is is the the crux of that project: uh, development of speed limit guidelines for um, the United States. And um, so, helped uh, helped MDOT uh, as a part of. Uh, the projects I mentioned earlier helped DOT come up with an appropriate list of um, roadway segments in rural areas, both on freeways and then non-freeway uh, type roadways that could uh, support from a safety standpoint that would be appropriate or, or uh, I guess highest priority candidates for higher speed limits. Um, acknowledging the fact that, that this might become state law and we're going to have to have uh, as a state, uh, be ready to go with some some highway segments. So that's really just kind of a background. I'll so talk
1: a little bit about the the history of speed limits in the country. I know that uh, you know from about the earliest days of the automobile at the you know turn of the nineteenth to twentieth century. Um, that's when discussions began, and I think from my research, Connecticut was the first state to actually have speed limits. Um, but do you can you talk about that history?
0: back in the early days of automobiles, you know, speed limits weren't a big issue because the roads were in pitiful shape and you really, the vehicles really <laughs> didn't have much horsepower so you couldn't really get up to speed. Um, but really about, you know, and I don't, the, the details are a little bit fuzzy, but, you know, at some point vehicles and roadways, roadways became smooth enough and there were enough roadways connecting cities and the, the vehicle performance had improved and these things are all interlinked obviously, that, you know, people could actually drive fast. Um, and then, of course, you know, the proliferation of automobiles. So once you started to get into, like, the 20s, 30s, 40s, um, when there was more long-distance travel, you started to see um, started to see speed limits pop up, um, both in rural and, and in urban areas. Um, let's fast-forward, then, to about the 1970s, uh, when the um, Middle East... Oil embargo was in effect, and what happened then was uh, for because oil prices were so high, and and there was a large kind of like a fuel shortage. Um, with the embargo, uh, prices were high, and so the federal government basically mandated a national maximum speed limits for all types of roadways, including our interstate highways. That you know we all know. Of today are in Michigan are posted between 70 and 75 miles an hour, typically in rural areas. Back in the 70s, with those same designs, they were at 55 miles per hour, but we found that people weren't driving at 55 on these, especially on the limited access freeway system, and uh, so it was difficult from a compliance standpoint we fast forward into the mid 90s uh, the federal government relaxed that requirement obviously the Mideast oil embargo was long gone at that point but the national maximum speed limit was still in effect they relaxed that on certain uh, rural interstates and then in Michigan you started to see some 65s pop up um, like interstate 69 around Lansing and then uh, released it again fully so basically turned uh, speed limit setting authority back over to the states entirely on all types of roadways, and then we saw uh, almost all of our freeways within a few years jump back up to 70 miles per hour in rural areas. And then, of course, that lasted until uh, uh, two years ago in 2017 when, when things went up on um, select freeways to uh, 75 miles an hour.
1: There's a lot to cover there, but uh, speaking of, of when we made that change in Michigan on some select uh, freeways, um, jumping them to 75 a couple of years ago and some some two lanes going to 65. I know that uh, the study is still out, the jury is still out on that and that's still being studied to see what kind of a difference it's made in terms of crash rates but uh, do you have any sense of that preliminarily?
0: No, I don't have any sense of uh, how the crash rates have changed and it's really it's a complicated issue so Is it crashes in total? Is it injury crashes that'll change? Is it fatal crashes that'll change? So you really kind of have to look at both the crash frequency or crash occurrence and also the injury severity of those crashes as well. And I really don't have anything to comment on at that point because we only really have one one year of after data available at this point. I do know that uh, the the actual travel speeds have certainly uh, ticked upward slightly. uh, in those locations where the speed limit has jumped to either 75 or uh, on freeways or 65 on two-lane highways.
1: But not necessarily proportionately. So in other words, if, if a lot of people were traveling say 78 when the speed limit was 70, it doesn't necessarily mean that everybody's going 83 now that the speed limit is 75, right?
0: That's right. So what we've seen is that in general, and these are kinda of rule of thumbs, that about so on freeways that jumped up by 5 miles per hour from 70 to 75, we saw that travel speeds on average went up about 1, and a half, one to 2 miles per hour, say. Um, and then on the two-lane roads where the speed limits went from 55 to 65, so a 10-mile-per-hour jump, we saw about, mm, about a 3 to 4-mile-per-hour um, jump on average in the, the average travel speeds.
1: It does feel a little like, you know, I liken it to the arms race and that we we keep building, you know, better bombs and then we keep building better armament and the cycle continues, you know, and it feels like that with cars. We're, We're coming up with all kinds of, you know, driver assist options that make our cars safer, whether it's lane assist or rear assist or adaptive cruise control, um, auto braking. And we know that's making a difference, but then we come up with more distractions and we raise the speed limits. So we, we you know, potentially offset those gains. Um, without, you know, taking too strong a stand on this, what, what do you think about, you know, the kind of libertarian point of view, um, like a bill introduced in California earlier this year and others in the country who say, you know, that freeways in the United States should all be like the Autobahn.
0: Well, I think that it really does come down to distractions. I mean, you're absolutely correct in terms of modern vehicles having so much more power and, you know, you're <laughs> at very high speeds now your car doesn't rattle like it may have, you know, 20 years ago or 30 years ago or whatever. But so cars are, more, are, are built better. They have far more safety features, but we have that one human element that's really becoming a problem, and that's distractions largely from smartphones but from other things as well. And that's really the the problem here, um, and, and is a primary reason why we continue to advocate for reasonable speed limits and reasonable travel speeds. Is like the vehicles are getting better, but the humans aren't, and that's part of the problem. Now, someday when we're in a uh, an automated system, or we have at least a mix of automated vehicles and human human operated vehicles, um, we can start looking at um, kind of the changes of shifts in in. in um, crash patterns and and injury severities uh, over time, but for now we're still in in a human-operated environment and humans are uh, more distracted than ever.
1: The real problem is that most of us think that um, the other humans aren't very good drivers, but I certainly am.
0: (laughs) Well, sure, everybody likes to think of themselves as the best driver in the world, but we all make mistakes from time to time, and we all get distracted from time to time in in one way or another, And, and... you know you never know if you're at the wrong place at the wrong time when you're distracted it you know might be a a problem from okay. a safety standpoint
1: that goes to why you know and I know you're definitely on board with this why we've been pushing for a long time to call them crashes and not accidents because it is the human element that that is a factor and I know the estimates are always 94 to 95% of crashes are caused by human error i actually think the number's higher than that
0: yeah i would agree with that um there's very few crashes that are caused by like a vehicle defect or a, a road defect um, a lot of it is really human error
1: and even then that would be human error because some human designed the road or the vehicle oh
0: sure <laughs> i'm talking about driver error though sure
1: sure i know I, I understand well i guess where do you where do you see this going i mean it seems like a national trend there just seems to be a lot of pressure um, across the country on this issue and it's been this way for for a few years now um and you know you're called to testify and you're called on as an expert and you're studying these things in an ongoing way um and you're trying not to be the sole arbiter you know you're not the judge and the jury on this but uh i mean do you think this is just going to be an ongoing issue do you see any 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 reason it would trail off
0: yeah i mean i i do i do see it being an ongoing issue i mean at some point we're going to reach our limit i would like to think, um in that i mean I, i think we all have our limit with our vehicle and uh, our vehicles capabilities and just really kind of what we're comfortable with and in many cases i mean for me personally and not admitting to speeding at all but that really is kind of in the upper 70s or around 80 where even on a straight flat perfectly designed section of roadway it's getting to be a little bit uncomfortable at that point everybody has that limit so if we had like a let's say a 85 or a 90 mile per hour speed limit on a on an interstate i'm not sure if i would would drive that and i've driven out west on roads that are up uh, posted at 80 and um sometimes i'm driving a little bit under the speed limit in those cases i just don't feel especially at night i just don't feel comfortable driving that fast for you know a deer is going to run out and in front of me um or a a buffalo sure out in wyoming a buffalo um but uh, so i do think there is a limit and I, you know the limit wasn't 55. The 55 mile hour limit back until the mid 90s on our interstates was that was unrealistically low. Speed, the roadways were designed for higher speeds than that but I really do we're kind of approaching that what I would call a design limit um, at some point and maybe that's 75 maybe it's 80 I'm not sure but at some point I think we're going to be reaching the driver comfort limit.
1: Well talk a little bit about that because I think that you know the the layman doesn't begin to know what goes into this they think that Changing speed limits is just about going out and changing the sign, and don't understand uh, the geometrics involved, and you know, banked curves, and all the things that go into road design that factor into that.
0: Exactly, and so, and I do teach a highway design class here at MSU, and I taught it at Wayne State as well. But the the primary um, guiding principle for for designing a roadway, especially in a rural area at higher speeds, is really the geometry. So we're talking about like the curves, so the horizontal curves, and also the hills and valleys, and we call those the vertical curves, and those are designed for a specific speed that should be at or above uh, the speed limit. So the design speed should meet or exceed whatever the posted speed limit is, just from a safety standpoint. And so these design principles, when we talk about things like sight distances and comfortable curvature, I mean, it, it really comes down to, and I just said it, it comes down to dri- designing for a driver comfort. Um, uh, we don't want to have drivers uh, d- driving with, let's say uh, sight distances or sight lines that are kind of right at the emergency threshold. so you'd have to like, you know slam on your brakes in order to stop. We don't want that's an uncomfortable driving situation. So we provide we design around uh, a little bit of a buffer to give drivers a bit more of a comfortable driving um, uh, driving environment.
1: So, you know, nobody, Most people, I should say, if you weren't a traffic safety engineer or perhaps a police officer, even knew what the 85th percentile was until a few years ago. And then when this legislation became debated in Michigan and reporters started asking about it, and you see it in stories now and you hear people talking about it, explain what the 85th percentile is and and why or why not it should be the sole criteria for setting speed limits.
0: Sure. So the 85th percentile as you know, as the name would imply, is the 85th. If you were to rank order all a, a sample of speeds, let's say 100 speeds, you rank them from lowest to highest. You'd pick the 85th highest, and that would be you know the 85th percentile speed. So that means that 84 uh, percent of the motorists, or I guess you could say 85, are going at or below that that speed. Right, so only 15% are going above that speed. And the idea was is if we set our speed limit at that level, if we go out and collect a lot of data and we find what the 85th percentile was, if we set our speed limit at that level, that it would be reasonable and realistic from an enforcement standpoint. So the law enforcement could focus on those that are above that 85th percentile limit and everybody else would be traveling at or below. And um, the idea was that, In terms of setting speed limits, again, if we designed a road for a certain speed, that we should be using the 85th percentile as as one of many factors uh, to set a speed limit. And, again, this is probably a little bit more of a rural highway thing versus an urban sense where you have uh, uh, traffic signals and stop signs and pedestrians and bicyclists to worry about. It's a little bit different in an urban area. But on a rural highway, the 85th, is a very good tool to, to use as at least as guidance or a kind of a starting point for setting speed limits now there's other risk factors that would go into that you know the number of curves per mile hills you know if you got a school on the segment or if you've got speed reduction zones certainly work zones uh, construction work areas um, interchange ramps those sorts of things driveways cross uh, crossroads those are all factors that come into play as well but if you just took a garden variety, highway segment that was straight and flat and had none of those features on it, then the 85th percentile speed would be definitely your uh, primary factor into setting the speed limit. So
1: I I guess that's a good way to, to say primary factor, but never really should be the sole factor.
0: No, it shouldn't just be the sole factor. There are always... Uh, other factors or other conditions that should uh, play a role. And we have to think, too, about like weather conditions and darkness and deer in this state, of course. I mean, there's always these kind of unpredictable situations, weather and deer probably being the most unpredictable um, part of that that we really can't control for, that go into this, uh, uh, th- that we have to kind of consider from a, from a safety standpoint Um that, that's out of our control so yeah. we want to always consider these things you know, maybe we don't want to push that 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 speed too high or if it were kind of in a snowband area or something like that you know th- these things always play a role
1: are animal crossings something you've been involved in studying because I know you know in, in Alberta and Western Canada they've done some creative things that seem like they've had some success with tunnels underneath the freeway that you know they direct elk
0: yeah I'm aware of them um, I haven't really done anything from a design standpoint or from recommending where they might go. Um, you know, the old joke goes, it's not like the deer can read the deer crossing sign.
1: Right, <laughs> right. So how do they get those elk to use those? I mean, I think that there's they, they, they've got to base them on natural migratory patterns and figure
0: it out. Sure. They're definitely based on, and I think the DNR would be in, in these states are probably called upon to, uh, to assist, but they're definitely based on some sort of migratory routes. Um, you wouldn't necessarily just put them anywhere. Um, in Michigan, with just a standard deer population, it's they're they're everywhere, right? I mean, it's it would be impossible to really identify in most cases. I shouldn't say all cases, but it'd be very difficult to uh, identify um, just specific crossing routes. I mean, you'd have them everywhere, right? But um, they're everywhere, but I'll,
1: there are fewer.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's something maybe the state has looked at or would desire to look at. But personally, I haven't been involved in in those sorts of studies for animal crossings.
1: This could be a whole nother podcast. I could uh, talk to somebody at the DNR about it. Right, um, right. So but let's, oh, go ahead, I'm sorry. I
0: was going to say, but but deer should be taken into the equation, right? Because when we talk about, remember earlier I said that we are seeing speeds tick up a little bit with these increased limits, you know, by about two miles an hour on interstates and and other freeways, and then maybe three to four miles per hour on these 65s. I mean, when when you talk about physics or energy, I mean you're increasing the energy by the square of that uh, speed difference. So, you know, there is definitely an when you have higher, higher energy at impact, I mean it has to go somewhere. So, I mean your likelihood for an injury uh, in a higher speed crash is always going to be higher if everything else is, stays the same, all the other factors stay the same, your likelihood of an injury. And that includes with collisions with a deer, obviously collisions with another vehicle or a fixed object. So and if you remember back earliest, early in this podcast, I did mention it might not just be the, the pure number of crashes or crash occurrence rates, but also are those crashes that are occurring becoming more severe. So what well, used to be just a property damage crash, maybe now it's an injury crash at that higher uh, level of speed. So
1: well, and I, yeah, thats definitely been—that's played out as as people have raised speed limits, and that's why, you know, I talked to, to my kids when they were in driver's training about, um, you know, living in the city versus living out in a rural area. That uh, you're less likely to be in a crash on the interstate, but if you are, it's more likely to be pretty severe.
0: Right. Yep. And, and You know, one other thing that kind of gets back to a question you'd asked earlier about uh, are we just going to be in this perpetual increasing speed limit mode, I do want to comment on the state of Oregon, and the state of Oregon actually did monitor uh, to rural highways where they had increased speed limits, and they had some catastrophic fatalities on those highways, and they actually rolled the speed limits back to their original level. And that's one of the very few cases recently that we've seen where where a state has actually rolled the speed limits back based on evidence of a, of a safety problem.
1: Yeah, I do remember reading about that. That's interesting. Um, one other thing I wanted to touch on because you've uh, participated in some research on this and this is always a hot topic uh, is is the use of roundabouts. Um, you know where I live in grand rapids they've they've proliferated and I think with with success, although there are still uh, critics and detractors and there are still people that stop, you know um, <laughs> and don't go by the the rule that I heard about in Boston a long time ago, which has had rotaries for years, as you probably know, and they always said the best thing to do is not make eye contact. So, yeah. <laughs> but what yeah. do you, uh, what's your research tell you about roundabouts?
0: Well, I can, I can say a few things about roundabouts. Um, one is that the more complex the roundabout gets, the more likely you are to see some crash or safety issues. Um, for example, like comparing a just a single lane on the inside, a single circulating lane versus a two or three lane inner circle um, and some of these like double roundabouts. I mean, those are always going to be more complicated than just your single lane uh, roundabout and are going to have a, lead to a higher likelihood for crashes. Um, Single lane roundabouts generally operate pretty pretty well. Uh, but, but there's a, such a variety in the... I would say that the multi-lane roundabouts are much less off the shelf, if that makes sense. They're, they're quite a bit more customized uh, from roundabout to roundabout. And we see a whole variety of uh, safety performance um, um, issues at, at those types of roundabouts. Um, you know, we could have great safety performance, but we could also have some that aren't doing quite so well.
1: But for the most part...
0: For the most part, though, just in, in total, for the most part, the the science will tell you that roundabouts do reduce injury crashes. They might not reduce all crashes, but they generally reduce injury crashes because you don't have vehicles... Ma- uh, colliding at a right angle anymore, like a T-bone type crash that you get at some, like when somebody runs a red light at a signalized intersection.
1: Yeah, that's a good reason, yeah, and yeah. a good Those secondary reason is that they do a lot to eliminate emissions, to reduce emissions.
0: Sure, they they definitely uh, would do that as well. I don't, I don't, I personally haven't studied that aspect, but I can tell you on the safety side, they definitely reduce a right angle so instead of having a, a 90 degree collision you're you at more of a glance angle or a side swipe and those generally are much lower and they're at lower speeds as well but those generally are, have a lower severity than a, a right angle crash but it really is about that speed reduction on the entry to a roundabout you don't see these super high speeds coming you're just you don't because you're forced uh, to in order to negotiate around the circle you're forced to a lower speed
1: yeah Well, that's very helpful. This is good stuff, and I think we're going to have to keep talking about speed limits and roundabouts for a while. I know that our social media feeds at MDOT um, are always uh, good for a couple questions a week on on roundabouts. Mm
0: -hmm. Great.
1: (laughs) But thanks for taking the time to do this, Dr. Gates. I appreciate it, and thanks for doing uh, important work to
0: try to make us all safer. You're welcome, and uh, thank you for the opportunity to uh, participate in this podcast. That's a wrap for this edition of Talking Michigan Transportation. Check out show notes and more on SoundCloud, or by subscribing on Apple Podcasts.